This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Clarissa Seglio about her book published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2022, titled A Cultural Arsenal for Democracy, the World War II Work of U.S. Museums. In this book, Dr. Seglio argues that attempts during the war years to fit exhibition craft to the aims of social instrumentality constitute an important but forgotten moment in the field's debates over whether museums should take active stances on public issues or remain neutral. In the book, she investigates how many different American museums and kinds of American museums saw engagement in wartime concerns and how they negotiated these various challenges. Um, The book focuses on exhibitions, uh, both large-scale and small, some of them in depth, which was fascinating. Um, And the book draws on a massive amount of research, uh, records, correspondence, um, archives of particular museums. And so there's really quite an astonishing amount of detail that, at least to me, compellingly does make a case for this being a piece of history that we do need to look at in order to understand how museums saw their role then in terms of engagement with society and how that's also influenced museums today. So thank you very much for sharing your time and expertise with the podcast and welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here and eager to share what you noticed was a lot of detail work and a challenge to wrap together into the page span of one book. Uh, If there's anything I hope readers might take from the book who are working on this topic is that there's still a lot more work to be done. Well, I think you gave us a good introduction. Um, I think readers will find that there's a lot to grapple with in a very stimulating way. Um, But before we get into some of that detail, I was wondering if you could start us off by introducing yourself and your research a bit. I'm an assistant professor of digital humanities at the University of Connecticut. Specifically, my home department is digital media and design. I see myself primarily as a cultural historian who works also in collaboration with museums, libraries, archives, and communities, sometimes on digital and also on analog projects that are intended to educate, engage, and empower. 
the people that these institutions wish to reach with their collections. So my other home at UConn, where I'm the associate director of research, is Greenhouse Studios. We're a research unit that brings together talent from faculty, library, archivists, design technologists, artists, and others to work together at the very start on interesting questions and to create projects together. In part, we create projects to help answer the question of how in an age of multimodal means of expression, can we take scholarly work beyond the traditional monograph? Great, thank you for that introduction. How, therefore, did you come to write this book? And if you could introduce us to the sort of central question that the book grapples with. Absolutely. I came to the topic of museums during wartime completely by accident. I was in my master's degree program looking for a topic in the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Arts Auerbach Art Library in Hartford, Connecticut, not too far from where I live. My idea was to discover when this museum, which dates back to the mid-1800s, so very old by American standards, had first exhibited women artists as solo artists. And while leafing through decades of members' bulletins, as I came to the 1940s, I began seeing these interesting articles and snippets about what the museum was doing to prepare for war, what programs and what exhibitions the museum was putting on related to the war. And I had never thought about what museums did during war. And as I began to dig into the secondary literature, At that time, still in the uh, early 2000s, there was uh, one book by Gaynor Kavanaugh on British museum work during World War I. There were a handful of articles about U.S. museums, and so there was this large void. Uh, Much had been written about how museums memorialize wars after the fact, but there was just so little, particularly on museums in the United States, about what they did during wartime related to the civic, social, and cultural concerns that communities have. And so my first question became, why is this not a topic of inquiry, uh, particularly when I would read institutional histories or broad histories of the field that tended to say this happened in the 1930s in great detail, then the war, and skipping on to the 1950s and 60s, there would literally be a sentence or two. But as I dug into it, my primary concerns became how museums navigated the issue of propaganda. 
when attention was paid to museum work during the period, it was focused on exhibition craft and other activities, either as being solely attributable to the vast cultural mobilization that led to wartime movies, wartime art, wartime radio programs, and that museums were just riding along this larger wave, or that perhaps this was an embarrassing period for museum history, where institutions had blindly become propaganda instruments. And neither of those answers seemed satisfying to me. And those were the questions that I began with. And part of what you found as the answer to these questions um, was surprising to me as a reader initially, which is that you argue that, quote, the wartime history of museums begins in the 1930s which is earlier than I had thought, and you argue that it was, quote, an important period of deliberation and debate about whether museums should take more active roles in civic affairs, and if so, what forms of involvement were and were not suited to their missions as collectors, preservers, and educational interpreters of natural and human-made materials, which to me was a very interesting insight into how museums at the time thought of themselves. So, I was wondering if you could explain a bit sort of what these debates were in the 1930s and how this idea of object knowledge and kind of what was meant to be in a museum and how it was meant to be explained was changing even before we got to wartime. Yes. So in the 1930s, as was the case in many countries, the Great Depression comes about. So museums, as with the nation at large, are suffering financial setbacks. Money from donors, money from municipal funding is no longer coming in. They are seeing declines in attendance, in membership, and as with other sectors in society, are asking how do we prove our worth at a time when the next meal, when basic human needs are front and center for much of the population? So there is a period of soul searching in the field, and there's a flourishing of books and other writings that come out during this period to ask those questions and to suggest some answers. Concurrent with this, we have the leading lights of the progressive era in the United States within the museum field, who during the late 1800s and early 1900s, had championed the idea that museums should be engaged in the lives of their public. And these leading lights have either recently passed away or have passed the torch on, so to speak, to those who they mentored and trained, who during the 30s are now well-established in their career. So during this period of soul-searching, there's a looking backward. 
at the Progressive Era Museum that was interested in training factory workers to have a finer-tuned aesthetic sensibility to bring to their work, or in the case of settlement museums, working with new arrivals to the United States to help them find their place in a new land. And so there's a looking backward to a sense that museums had been more engaged in the daily lives of citizens' concerns. There was also the adult education movement that museums look to as a potential partner in their rethinking of their role in society. With the Great Depression comes not only unemployment, but underemployment and fear of leisure time begins to consume some of the pundits. And how can leisure time be made productive uh, for those who are no longer at work? And the adult education movement is championing the idea that beyond the university setting, in what ways can Americans continue to learn, whether it's a new livelihood, more about the technological changes that are shaping the culture around them? And museums look to themselves as being able to adapt their collections and their resources to this need of adult education. And while today we think of the fact that museums are educational sites, this was not necessarily the norm outside of child education, uh, going into the elementary schools or having a school group come into the museum. During this period, museums in the U.S. were, particularly the larger ones, primarily invested in their identity as research institutions. And now to get to your question about how does this lead to a rethinking of how objects carry meaning? Stephen Kahn has argued in his book, which looks at the intellectual place of museums in American society from roughly 1876 to 1925, that as we get into these early decades of the 1900s, the kind of naked eye science that could be conducted in a museum by examining specimens, whether it's a canvas, a skull, uh, a product produced by society, such as a tool or a farming implement, that the kinds of research that could be done purely by interacting with artifacts was being eclipsed by the developments 
within universities, the things that the eye can't see without a microscope and uh, particularly in the sciences, leaving museums uh, a bit adrift. And so some began to champion the idea that we are educational institutions and that as educational institutions, we cannot afford to be divorced from what our public is grappling with and that we have a duty to society to be useful. And again, it's not all of the museum field in the U.S. moving in this direction, but a particular set of of institutions and individuals that are coming to embrace this idea of the museum as a social instrument, meaning that through exhibition, education, programming, and the resources and expertise that a museum has, they should be more directly engaged with the concerns of contemporary events and people's daily lives. And that by doing this, they have an important role to play in the American democracy, understood as having an educated populace that knows how to discern facts, and make its own decision. And for some, the museum is not meant to be interventionalist in this way. And for others, research is what they continue to want to center as the primary work of museums, with education being a subsidiary activity that happens incidental to the research. So these are some of the ideas percolating in the 1930s. And what I argue in the book is that the earliest wartime concerns, which are defensive in nature before the U.S. has entered the war, and which have to do with hemispheric unity, making sure that North and South America are united in their resistance to allowing fascist ideas, and even in the case of Latin America, uh, potentially fascist troops or shipyards or airfields coming into the hemisphere. And so museums and some in the field were poised for a great public cause. And I argue that the first cause that they began to rally around was that of hemispheric unity, and that we need to realize that wartime, as others have argued, is not bracketed by a tidy start date, such as Pearl Harbor in the case of the U.S., and a tidy end date, such as the signing of a treaty, but that wartime is a constellation of attitudes, actions, and ideologies that bleed beyond these tidy contained borders, and that wartime work really does in the United States begin in the late 1930s. Thank you for explaining all of that. I think it 
uh, brings together a lot of different strands, as the book does as well. Um, so a good representation of the book. Um, and I wanted to ask about that. So again, I was not really thinking about the 1930s reading this book, and I wasn't also really thinking about Latin America through the lens of preparing for war in Europe. So I was really interested in the section you have that you've already mentioned on hemispheric unity. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. How and why were museums involved in US foreign policy towards Latin America? And how did this connect, even at the time, pretty explicitly to preparing for war? Right. So couple things to keep in mind that many scholars have written about U.S. museum involvement in Latin American diplomacy during the 1930s, primarily from the perspective of what was sent abroad to Latin America. And so there is a rich literature there. I in the book and focused on what's happening domestically and specifically the ways in which museums participate through exhibition craft in literally materializing uh, these national imaginaries that bind the populace together in common cause. And looking at how was the good neighborhood, this calling the populace to be part of a supranational imaginary, this imagined community of North and South America sharing democracy, sharing humanity in common, how that is knit into the good neighborhood on the home front is specifically what I'm looking at. And one of the reasons I think that museums found this to be an attractive entry point for beginning to experiment with social instrumentality, taking a ripped from the headlines cause and participating in it, is that it was a pitched as being about maintaining peace. At this time, America is still hoping to be the great neutral. They are not eager to enter into another European war. And so for the broader public, creating hemispheric unity is a way to protect itself from what's going on overseas. And at the same time, the government is understanding if we go to war, and even if we don't, we are losing access to raw materials that are being disrupted by the European war. We need to shore up trade alliances and diplomatic alignments with sources of these raw materials to the South. So there is an imperialist extractive nature to the government thinking in this area. There is a real fear that with the 
relationships either with Mussolini's Italy or Hitler's Germany in certain of the South American nations that an airbase could be set up. So it was very much constructed as a defensive posture rather than a getting ready for war footing. And for museums, it's about international accord, about friendly relations between neighbors, and that's the approach that they take. Now, during the 1930s with the Works Progress Administration, many museums for the first time begin receiving federal money to do their work. And this was a bit of a new phenomena in the United States where federal funding for museums is not the norm. And there was excitement. Wow, new funding source. Maybe we can work more collaboratively with government interests. But there was also the concern that federal money means federal control. And that will compromise our ability to represent facts honestly and fairly. So there is some desire among certain museums. They're hoping to get federal funding uh, through the efforts that they put on around hemispheric unity. They continue to do this work anyway. Museum directors are invited by the State Department and other government organizations, such as the Office of the Coordinator of uh, Inter-American Affairs, to participate on boards that shape what is exported to Latin America. And so I would characterize the domestic work primarily as a goodwill effort and uh, museum's hopes there were again to show that we're plugged into contemporary events, we have resources and knowledge to share, and in the U.S. at least, the 1920s had also been a time when certain museums participated in the original good neighbor work of trying more explicitly at that time to support trade relations uh, between the two nations. Uh, Two nations, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a specific exhibit put on by the Newark Museum in New Jersey about the country Colombia and the ways in which trade relations between the U.S. and Colombia were in a very precarious spot at the time. And the New York Museum took it upon itself to highlight trade relations with Colombia, particularly through the lens of Newark businesses. And uh, as part of this 1920s museum engagement in manufacturing as a field of education that museums could be part of. So that's where, I'm sorry, I went with the relations between the the two nations. I was thinking Colombia and the U.S. there. And I've gotten a bit off track, so I'll let you get me on track. Well, it was great to give just a sort of peek into just how much detail the book goes into, which is great. 
um, because you do talk about these big arguments, but then give us really quite specific examples that illustrate these different dynamics really well. Um, and in fact, when we get on to the war bit, um, I have some particular e- exhibitions I would love to ask you about. So let's move in that direction. Um, and you talk about, you know, we've talked a bit about these debates of what is a museum meant to be? How does this work? Um, and how in some ways it almost seems like the working on hemispheric unity helps museums sort of all come together a little bit about, oh, okay, we could do it this way. All right, here's how this could work. Um, again, not fully unanimous, but a bit going on. Um, but then there seems to be more consensus when the US does actually enter World War II around the ability of museums to provide psychological support to the public. But you then tell us um, in a lot of detail, which is great, that how this is actually meant to be operationalized, what does it mean in practice for a museum to provide psychological support, was actually much more contentious within the museum community. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of what these debates were. Um, And I was particularly interested in the angle between different kinds of museums. And so, for example, what did psychological support mean to an art museum versus a local history museum? Um, what, What did that debate look like? Absolutely. In the U.S. at this time, art museums are not the most numerous. That honor goes to all the small town historical societies, house museums, etc. But art museums are the most dominant in steering the nature of the field. So what much of what we know uh, and is written comes from that lens of the art museum with science, natural history, history, and other museum types joining in on the conversation. And I think that in one way, the debate over, yes, we all agree museums can and should be useful during wartime. If we're not, we're going to lose favor with the public. If we're not, we may not make it through to the end of the war because support will be withdrawn from us due to lack of utility during wartime. Museums at the same time are losing staff to the war and to better paying wartime manufacturing jobs. And so there's a sense that we can and we must aid and support the public. The dividing line grossly speaking, is museums are places of refuge, an escape from the worries and cares and anxieties of wartime. On the other side, we can't keep going on as usual. We must leverage our resources to be sites that are actively educating the public and engaging with the topics and ideas and needs that they have. No matter the museum type, 
this general divide is the same. And part of it is the very valid concern, and this came up in the 1930s as well, in terms of what is the difference between clearly didactic education that is designed not only to inform, but to encourage action on a social issue. How is that kind of social instrumentality, particularly if it's relayed through an exhibition that is directing viewers to take action in their community based on what they have learned, how is that different than propaganda? And we would hope that museums of any age would have a conversation around that, and indeed they did. And one of the things that can become murky in the literature is at this time, propaganda as a word is often used to mean public relations. And so we can uh, see phrases where they talk about we've excelled at our propaganda. And what they mean is uh, they put out press releases that were picked up and, and widely disseminated. So what we begin to see is maintaining the identity of the temple, the sanctuary, the place away from the cares of the world is a safe answer and doesn't require one to negotiate where that line between purpose-driven education and propaganda might be. That idea of educating so that publics can take action is a little murkier. And indeed, fewer museums are going strongly in that direction. What I love in the literature is uh, over time, we see this almost snarky back and forth between the idea of what is business as usual for a museum. So in 1941, uh, a curator from the U.S. National Park Service outlines, based on the British example, how U.S. museums need to step up and put on wartime programming, how to plant a victory garden, what one needs to know about a current theater of military action elsewhere in the world. And he emphasizes that, yes, museums need to carry on their ordinary work, but he says, and I'm quoting, this does not imply business as usual. A year later, at an address at the American Alliance of Museum, Fisk Kimball, who's head of the Philadelphia Art Museum, one of the high-profile museums of the time at the U.S., takes the opposite tactic, underscoring that the role of art museums is the same as it is in peacetime. Uh, that they provide spiritual refreshment and that they're there to minister to the soul. And he speaks back to Lewis in a sense by saying that we need to go right on doing essentially what we've been doing. 
not for the sake of business as usual, but because what we were doing is still the right thing to do. And he comes back even three years, uh, two years later, right? Uh, I'm sorry, a year later in 1943. And in his annual report, he's sharing that we've remained a serenity, you know, a haven of serenity, peace and rest. And unlike these other museums that are making what he called frantic efforts to serve for the most part badly purposes for which they are ill-adapted to, we've stuck the course. We've gone about our work because we know what the nature of our work is and our public has ratified this choice. And I know we're going to speak a little later about the work of the Museum of Modern Art in New York, uh, but the snark that captivated me so much in these exchanges that are taking place in the literature of the field, but also in notes that museums are sharing among staff, is that the Museum of Modern Art reads this annual report statement from Kimball, and in one of their board of trustees meetings, they make note of this, and they brag that we have also had our choice ratified by the public because we are seriously but by no but by no means frantically serving the war effort and then they go on to cite uh that they have better than ever membership renewal their attendance has been building uh and one of the beautiful things they quote is a member who says that they've been to the museum over and over again to see the exhibit Road to Victory because it elevates uh, the stark realities of the day into something quite awesome and beautiful and that they're grateful for what the Museum of Modern Art is doing for society. And so this line between purposive education on a contemporary topic and what constitutes patriotic propaganda is of great concern to all museums throughout the war, the war and and they find different ways through it and even museums that say look we're a haven for calm and serenity these institutions have numerous workers. And in those institutions where, say, Fisk Kimball is declaring we're doing what we normally do, there'll be members of the education department that have an empty gallery and take on a war-related exhibition for a two-week span because that's what they want to do. So no one museum is truly picking one side of this kind of black and white choice and sticking to it. Throughout the war, a little bit of everything is happening in museum spaces uh, as individuals make decisions, as departments navigate how to do their work when funding is short, staffing is short, and the best of the collections might be 
away in storage for safety and they still have to put on programs. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This is what was really captivating was the range of different choices made and how because of a lot of these pressures that you mentioned, um, I was particularly interested in the staffing problems. Um, these debates about what they should be doing are happening really at the same time that they're trying to do things. Um, Absolutely. So it's all happening sort of in parallel and with all sorts of, well, we're thinking, we're saying this, but we're actually doing this. And hang on, what about that? Um, and so I do want to come on to MoMA, uh, the Museum of Modern Art, because they clearly were sort of out ahead in some ways. Um, and in particular, you go into a lot of detail about the wartime housing exhibit. And I want to ask you about it. So would you mind starting us off by just introducing this exhibit and what it was and what it looked like to our listeners? Absolutely. The Museum of Modern Art's exhibition, simply called Wartime Housing, came out in 1942. And it's a collaboration between the new industrial design department at MoMA, the National Committee on the Housing Emergency, because at the time in the United States, the wartime industry boom coming after the Depression is creating work and from across the U.S., Workers are migrating, landing in the towns and cities where work is only to find all the rental spaces have been taken up. People are living in cars, sleeping in tents, etc., so that they can get the job and keep the job. And so uh, that's the role of the National Committee on Wartime Housing, and then there's also the National Housing Agency. So we see this collaboration among a museum, among governmental entities, seeking to solve a problem and coming at it from different perspectives. Wartime, housing for wartime workers is in short supply. Easy answer, build more housing. But they did that in World War II. It was ill-built and later became uh, blights when industry collapsed. And so as an educational exhibit, the desire is to educate the public about the housing shortage problem, the ways in which this problem is impacting workers and their families, and then to help the public ascertain how planning can help solve the problem while also positioning a community post-war to have housing units that are an enhancement and an enrichment to community life. From its perspective, the Museum of Modern Art also wants to ensure that the housing designs are representative of the best 
that modern architecture has to offer aesthetically and in terms of cultivating uh, rich community and social relationships. What makes this exhibit unique, and I think perhaps for me, the ultimate expression of what social instrumentality in exhibition craft was imagined to look like is that it picks up what was talked about in the 1930s in terms of taking a storytelling format that can produce an intellectual, an emotional, and an embodied way of knowing. Or as they phrased it at the time, if education can appeal to the individual's mental, emotional, and physical states, and if we can reach them through thought, feeling, and action, that is a balanced exhibit that is fostering democratic thinking and decision-making. And so what they do with wartime housing is, from the very beginning, I'm treated to a film of workers flowing out of a factory, and I literally walk alongside them into the exhibit, into a dark corridor where I see job wanted or uh, workers wanted jobs posting ads. And from there, I move into a room where the museum lowered the ceiling scuffed up the floor so that it's a close, cramped, claustrophobic space. Large photo montages cover three walls showing war workers sleeping on benches, children living in tents, uh, washing in a small bowl of dirty-looking water. In other words, workers and their families have no real place to live. And in this space is an audio similar to a radio play where the museum goer is hearing the discussion of a man and woman who are perhaps living in a tent or living in cramped quarters, discussing how the stresses are impacting the children who have no place to study. And it's this radio play, to use that word again, because that's where the museum is drawing inspiration from, the mainstream popular media of the day that is designed to really move the museum goer and give them a desire to do something about this situation. And what was remarkable to me is that in terms of archival materials about particularly temporary exhibits, museums have not always been the best keepers of their own histories. But the archives at MoMA, they, they've converted what were vinyl 
records into audio tapes. So we can not only read the script, but we can hear the audio that the individual in 1942 would have heard while looking at exhibition installation shots. And they have beautifully written scripts, as did uh, several of the best examples of socially instrumental exhibition craft that I analyze had. And so these exhibitions are about moving the museum goer through story, presentation of fact, but also that appeal not only to intellect and emotion, but to have them kind of feel it in their bones, if you if you will. And by the end of the exhibit, um, kind of as a bit of an anticlimax after the theatrics of the earlier stages, there's a very rational, orderly space and a uh, takeaway pamphlet that instructs museum goers on how to take community planning back to their own neighborhood. How does one enact good community planning that addresses the immediate problem, but also is meant to meet the long-term plans of a community? The big problem, it went primarily in New York City to the wrong audience. Uh, Museum goers there uh, weren't community planners uh, for the burgeoning boom towns, uh, which were elsewhere. Plans to bring it to Washington, D.C. to influence policy and lawmakers never came to be. The exhibit does travel around the country. Uh, The Museum of Modern Art already had a robust circulating exhibition program. But all the multi-sensory features couldn't travel. It was too expensive, too bulky. So communities around the U.S. received uh, the photographic elements and then supplemented them with materials, photographs from their own communities so that they could customize the message to the specific issues in uh, Pittsburgh, San Diego, uh, elsewhere. And this, you mentioned the photographs, you mentioned the sensory, you mentioned the multimedia aspect, which I think was some of the really fascinating uh, examples of how all sorts of things from outside the museum were influencing what a museum was doing, right? There were just many more things that could be done to tell stories than when museums were maybe first created, as you mentioned at the very beginning, an old museum in the United States would be the 1800s. But you talk in particular about how wartime housing is a good example of the difficulties in working out how to actually do this, how to not only create immersive storytelling, but then adapt it um, for other approaches. And you mention issues in particular around the photograph as an object. So I was wondering if you could Tell us a little bit about that strand of this exhibit. Absolutely. The use of photography in exhibitions has a longer history uh, tied to that progressive era moment. Uh, Jacob Rees and uh, similar photos illustrating uh, the plight of 
those who are poorly housed, uh, bad labor conditions, etc. But within art museums in particular, the photograph is not yet accepted as an art object. And MoMA was at the vanguard of arguing that photography could, in its aesthetic dimensions, be categorized at art as art. The issues with photographs during the period for museums, uh, in some part, they're emulating what they've seen at World's Fairs, particularly in 1939, where large photo montages make vivid impressions on fairgoers. Life, look, and similar magazines that are photo-rich and uh, use photo essays to tell compelling human stories. So this utilization of photographs for storytelling within museums during the 1940s becomes uh, particularly uh, broadly speaking, popular because photographs are cost-effective. You don't need to rely on one original, so they can be mass-produced. Their sizes can be changed. Uh, Their qualities, uh, whether they're printed in color, black and white, or uh, mounted in various ways. They're a very fluid, useful medium at a time when funding is short. The best of a collection is not going to be sent on the road because it might not even be in the galleries. So photographs are economical, practical, and useful for creating temporary displays that are visually appealing quickly and also that can be sent around by the government, by museums, and others who are producing these. As art, however, there is the debate that these storytelling exhibitions, uh, some are claiming to be artistic productions, but because the photograph lacks that aura of the singular, unique, not replicable, original, it isn't considered art by the majority of museums. But for the purposes of the social instrumentality and exhibition craft, that is not a particular concern. But art museums continue to deprecate that type of exhibition. Uh, One pundit uh, saying that these photo montage exhibitions, particularly if they don't have these other sensory aspects that wartime housing had, uh, just come across as ideas that have been steamrolled into flatness. Uh, So they, they don't have a universally loved reputation within the museum field. It's a very evocative quotation. Um, (laughs) I probably will think of it the next time I see an exhibit of photographs. Um, But I want to come on to another exhibit that you, again, use sort of as an example of a wider trend, 
which is the idea of museums having wartime exhibits that respond to the fact that because of wartime travel, essentially, because so many soldiers were posted all over the world, the general public now had a much wider knowledge of the world and of places that were probably not super well known um, before the war, particularly if we look at the Pacific Theatre and the tiny little islands, for example, that people at home might be receiving letters from, soldiers coming back might have been there. Um, and how the exhibit sometimes would would use this, would respond to this knowledge, but telling that more global story in a very particular way, um, in in from what looks like to modernize now, perhaps a very narrow way. Um, and so I was wondering if you could introduce us a little bit to kind of, this is part of what you call the one world debate. Um, and if you could tell us a little bit about the example of the exhibit titled, What the Boys Send Home, and how this was both an expansion of American knowledge, but also in a lot of ways, quite reductive. Yes. So... At the outset, I mentioned that I'm interested in this materialization through museum exhibition craft of different national and supranational imaginaries, uh, starting with the good neighborhood of hemispheric unity. Uh, with wartime housing, we move to the idea of the home front as a type of solidarity. And then the last, if you will, is that one world taking its inspiration from Wendell Wilkie's book of the same name, which captured the public imagination. And it is the anticipation of how we will live in unity and peace after the war ends. And this idea is already bubbling up before the U.S. gets into war. But Museum exhibitions in 44, 45, and 46, including what the boys send home, are thinking about how does the museum writ large now position itself as a gateway to global citizenship. And that phrase comes from the curator of What the Boys Sent Home, Gladys Linwall Pratt. She has a background in anthropology, had previously worked for the American Museum of Natural History. She's now at the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art, where her special remit is to build public engagement in the museum. And she has what we would now call a crowdsourced exhibition. She puts out a call to the Hartford area community, send in the souvenirs, the trinkets, the items from around the world that your relatives overseas have been sending back to you. And indeed, some 50 people send in a grab bag of 500 objects. And here, the storytelling element of social instrumentality falls away. And in a sense, we begin to see a resurrection of what had always been present during the war, of that object-based epistemology, that I can look at an object when it's rightly displayed 
and extract its knowledge without assistance. And that has always been prevalent and still can be in art museums. So these trinkets from around the world are displayed sometimes thematically. Here's slippers from around the globe, or sometimes here are items all from Greenland, for example. And the idea of the one world internationalism is that art is the common language of all peoples, and it can speak for itself. And that if we can only continue to see our common humanity, we will forge a lasting peace. The issues that arise are related to the embedded colonial origins of museums, the particularly at that time, white governance, white perspectives on what is fine art, what is craft. Uh, so all the, the racist, colonialist attitudes that are baked into much of the museum structure are seeing human sameness, but not able to uh, surmount, I guess, if you will, the prejudices and biases that remain unquestioned. So with what the boys send home, uh, being of a more anthropological bent, Pratt is very insistent that don't send in the tourist souvenir or the thing that, quote, apes at civilization. So she's seeking common humanity, but she's still reifying this notion that through cultural products, we discern that the other, in quotes, is not necessarily as civilized as we are. Over time, uh, this internationalism as the Cold War comes in, is hoping to push for racial equity at home, but rising Cold War nationalism, Red Scare tactics, and the lack of political will to address America's racial issues begin to make internationalism within the museum context a bit more risky, a bit more dangerous, uh, and so this reliance on human sameness th depicted through artifacts becomes a lovely message that isn't associated necessarily with what action should I take in my community. I thought that that was a really interesting exhibition and discussion, so I'm glad you included that. Um, in the book. Um, I want to move to my one of my particular questions that I love asking authors, um, which was, was there something particularly surprising that you came across in your research? Anything that jumped out to you that was maybe unexpected? Many things, but two that come immediately to mind are the fact 
As I mentioned, that MoMA still had the audio recordings, not only from the exhibition, but from the radio broadcasts that accompanied the exhibition. Uh, And to hear the nuances of accent, cadence, sound effects, and all the rich ways that meaning is conveyed that can be in conjunction with or in contrast to what is being seen in the physical space really enriched my appreciation for how these exhibitions, and I I need to say wartime housing is truly exceptional in the way, in what it was able to do with multiple media. This is not the norm. The other big surprise, and one that I'm uh, actually digging into further, is A small exhibit in 1942 only ran for a few weeks at Vassar College's Social Museum called The Great Idea. It was in collaboration with the National Conference for Christians and Jews, and it really is an appeal for religious freedom, racial tolerance, and understanding that the United States is a composite nation that will only find its strength in embracing its diversity economically, socially, and that it needs to uh, be unified in reality, uh, uh, not just in word. Uh, This surprised me because many exhibitions were not that forthright in addressing the divisions present on the home front, and also the fact that a social museum was still going in 1942. This is a phenomena that had largely died out in the 30s, and this museum carried on maybe limping a bit into the 1950s. And uh, I'm eager to learn more about it because that surprised me. Wow, two really interesting surprises. Um, I'm always glad I ask because there's always something interesting. I know I'm certainly probably not the only person who listened to your answer about surprise that the radio was still preserved. Um, I think a lot of us have felt that moment when you go into some sort of archive and they have a lot more or something in way more detail than you could have ever hoped for. Um, So that must have been a great moment. But your second point drew me beautifully onto my last question, which is what are you working on now or next? Well, uh, in addition to learning more about the Vassar College's social museum, I have a couple of collaborative projects that I had to put on the back burner while finishing the book. One is Museums and Civic Discourse, uh, an online edited volume where my colleagues and I are interested in providing a critical look at how museums came to see stimulating public discussion and action as being part of their mission, and and how can understanding this history better help practitioners today envision new paths that work in this area can take. A second project is completely different. It's a headset-based virtual reality experience provisionally entitled Beyond Nuremberg, where we're challenging 
adult participants to investigate Holocaust history in relation to the trial of the major war criminals that took place in Nuremberg, Germany in 1945 and 46. And it's about bringing digitized archival materials that are currently available on archival websites into the 3D virtual space where they can be handled and inspected as three-dimensional objects. And the challenge there is how to engage in a meaningful way with what we do as historians. How do I make meaning from a photograph that perhaps doesn't have a lot of context? How do I then connect that photograph to a document? And how out of all these archival pieces, do I begin to build a story? So we're envisioning it as an experience that both introduces participants to how to work with primary sources and how these puzzle pieces can reveal the histories that we know about the Holocaust, both in terms of what was known at the time of the Nuremberg trials and uh, what was what we've learned uh, since. Wow. Well, that sounds like a very interesting collection of projects. So certainly nothing you're going to get bored with, I'm sure. Um, for our listeners, a reminder, the book is titled A Cultural Arsenal for Democracy, The World War II Work of U.S. Museums published by the University of Massachusetts Press in 2022. Dr. Clarissa Seglio, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It's, it's been wonderful to talk with you.